right, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Hebrews chapter number 5. Hebrews chapter number 5. Again, it's uh, great to have so many friends and family to come celebrate God's work of salvation in these young people's lives. What a support system that is, encouragement in the Lord, encouragement to follow the Lord. Thankful for that legacy that's represented here and the Herman family, extended family. Hebrews chapter number five, we're going to continue the second part of our message entitled, A Better High Priest. A Better High Priest. Would you join me in prayer this morning before we dive into this sermon this morning, a better high priest? Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you so much, again, that you are faithful. You're faithful to your word. I pray that you would use my feeble attempt and by your grace to be faithful to a text to preach and share the truth of the inspired and inerrant Word of God. I claim your promise that when your Word goes out, it it never returns void. We know that every single person that is here this morning is by your direct providence. It's no accident that we have gathered here this morning, and so I pray that all those that are under this roof of, of your church, that they would hear and gladly receive the truth of the Word of God. And as a result, Father, I pray that we be changed to be more like your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen. And again, last week we, we opened up with this broader section that began in chapter 5, verse number 1, and it's, again, as a reminder, going to go all the way down through chapter number 7, really unpacking in great detail this incredible and fundamental truth that Jesus is our high priest. As we arrive here in verse number 7, uh, we're going to observe a little bit of a shift, a shift in, in focus away from the comparisons that the author of Hebrews made between Jesus Christ and the Levitical priestly order, that of of Aaron. There was comparisons of these basic qualifications of what a high priest is and what that role looks like and how Jesus perfectly fulfilled those qualifications of that high priest. And now, this morning as we move on to verse number 5, and we're going to preach all the way down through verse number 10 this morning, we're going to observe the the differences by way of contrast. Uh, Yes, there are similarities, but yet this morning, we're going to see that Christ is going to make some separation between himself and this Levitical order, that of Aaron. We're going to see that Jesus truly is a better high priest. I don't know about you, but I can... Remember back in different times of history when someone better came along. Maybe it was a generational talent in the realm of athletics. The passing of 
a baton from one generation to the next. I'm thinking of uh, Larry Bird and, and Michael Jordan. It's interesting as I was looking up those statistics that uh, Michael Jordan was 11 and 17 against Larry Bird, but yet Michael Jordan is considered the GOAT, right? Isn't that interesting? But somebody better came along. Uh, the overall accomplishments, the skill, the style, uh, how he revolutionized uh, sports in general, uh, Michael Jordan was, was better in a lot of ways. Maybe it's in the area of, of medicine. Uh, some brilliant mind uncovered a breakthrough. I'm thinking of Dr. Alexander Fleming's discovery of penicillin back in 1928. Revolutionized medicine. Brought about antibiotics that ultimately uh, saved hundreds of thousands of lives of those that normally would die from simple infections. Maybe there's a great musical savant or prodigy that demonstrated this unique creativity and and unparalleled skill. I'm thinking of Mozart, who no doubt uh, separated himself in many different ways by his individual skill and his ability to compose and to understand and relate to music. So many different areas could be described and individuals could be called out, but somebody better comes along. There's, There's a standard, and then that standard is recalibrated. The bar is lifted higher, and we see somebody better come on to stage. And our expectations and our understanding of the goat or the best in whatever that situation might be or that realm of life might be, it's, it's changed in our mind as a result of that better person coming along. Well, up until Jesus coming on the scene, we had a Levitical order of the priest where we had a sacrificial system in place. And Jesus came and he took on flesh. He was born of a virgin. And he came to fulfill that law. He came to redefine that law. He came to be that sacrifice once and for all. So that that covenant could close and there would be a new covenant that we're going to observe even this morning through the Lord's Supper. That new covenant is through His blood, His life and sacrifice, the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In a similar sense, this is exactly what the author, again, is attempting to establish right here in chapter number five. Jesus of Nazareth. He was more than just a generational talent or prodigy or some great influencer, some great teacher or rabbi. Really, the entire history of the human race revolves around the person and work of this man, Jesus Christ. In 1984, a professor of history and religious studies at Yale by the name of Yaroslav Pelikan delivered the Jesus Lectures where he highlighted not only the undeniable historicity of this man, Jesus, but he also focused in on the unparalleled influence that Jesus had and continues to have on Western culture. From art and music to literature and economics, the ripple effect of the life and ministry of Jesus continues on even to this day. These Jesus lectures were featured in the New York Times back then and 
Dr. Sam Kim, he highlights a key quote from these lectures in a recent book. He says this, regardless of what anyone may personally think about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull up out of history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, the author says this, how much history would be left? Jesus changed everything. And the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ changes everything. Jesus truly did change everything. The moment he took on flesh and was born, changed everything. The world was never the same. Friends, in a similar sense, this is the central idea of the author of Hebrews. It is all about Jesus establishing not only his existence, that Jesus was and is and is to come, but also that he truly is better. There is no other that rivals our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is truly unique in his person and his work. In our text here in chapter 5, verses 5 through 10, he is better than the Levitical priestly line. And in contrast, Jesus and Aaron remind us further that Jesus stands alone as the faithful, merciful, and the great high priest, as we have seen up to this point through the book of Hebrews. Jesus Christ is perfectly qualified and capable to fulfill this role as we've seen in verses 1 through 4. And now we're going to see how Jesus stands alone as the better high priest. That said, the big idea from last week is what we're going to carry forward to our text this morning as well in part 2 of a better high priest. And the big idea is this, Jesus meets all the requirements of a high priest and is able to represent us perfectly before a holy God. Jesus meets all the requirements of a high priest and is able to represent us perfectly before a holy God. Last week, again, we looked at the comparisons. This morning, we're going to look at four areas of contrast that the author calls out here in verses 5 through 10. Let's look at the first Only Christ, only Christ is called God's Son. This is the first contrast, the first area of contrast that we see between Jesus and Aaron and this Levitical priestly system. Only Jesus is called God's Son. Remembering our most recent area of comparison in verse number four, do you remember it? And no one takes this honor for himself. Again, we're reading verse number four of Hebrews chapter number five. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God just as Aaron was. So the author of Hebrews refers to Jesus as whom? As Christ. This is important to note in our text this morning, which if we were to look at the actual translation of that word Christ, what does it mean? It literally means anointed one. Historically speaking, when we look at this idea of anointing, anointing was an external sign of affirming an individual to a specific calling or or role. So the author's use 
of the term Christ seems intentional and purposeful. But to what end? It's to identify Jesus as set apart, as called specifically for his role as Savior, his role as a great high priest. If you remember with me back to verse number five of chapter number one, we have seen this quotation before, have we not? From Psalm chapter number two, verse number seven. We're reminded that Jesus was not only chosen and appointed by God the Father for this high priestly role, but God the Father affirms this by his own words directly to his son. God the Father says to Jesus what? You are my son. Today, I have begotten you. This is important. The author of Hebrews goes back to this quotation from Psalm chapter number two, verse number seven, or Psalm two, verse number seven, to remind us of this unique and special relationship that God the Father has with his son. And in chapter number one, that set Jesus apart from the angels. In chapter number five, it sets Jesus apart from the Levitical priestly order. You are my son. God the Father says that to one person only, and it is Jesus Christ. There's a couple other nuances that this affirms. This affirms the deity of Christ. God the Father calling Jesus Christ His Son. This sets Jesus apart in this reality that Jesus Christ is deity. He's a part of that perfect triune Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So Jesus Christ, the anointed one, set apart for a calling, for a purpose, to do what? To give his life a ransom for many. This context should inform our understanding of the second half of this quotation from Psalm 2. The phrase says this, today I have what, begotten you. This term translated here as begotten certainly has been used to describe areas of lineage, right? That's the most common. People can get wrapped around the axle of this particular quotation in relation to Jesus. Um, the Mormon religion have um, downgraded Jesus Christ and called into question his deity as a result of this quotation, as a result of this term, God the Father has begotten God the Son. So what do we, what do we mean by this phrase? Is Jesus, God, has the eternality of Jesus been called into question as a result of this quotation from Psalm chapter number two? I think there's some context that helps us here. The context is of what? Appointment and anointing. Today you are my son. The previous verse, we're reminded that only God chooses the high priest. Only God appoints this one in this role of high priest. So one commentator described it this way. Psalm 2, verse 7 is a declaration of appointment, not of parentage. 
This no doubt is the simple and very clear interpretation in light of verse number four. Only Christ is called God's son. Aaron nor any other Levitical priest can claim this reality. So there's separation. There's contrast. Aaron could not be called God's son. Only Jesus Christ could claim this reality. So then what would our conclusion be based off of this unique description, this unique relationship that God the Father has with God the Son? Our conclusion should be this. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Moving on to verse number six, we observe our second area of contrast. Only Christ was given an eternal priesthood. Only Christ was given an eternal priesthood. You see that in verse number six. It says, as he says also in another place, you are a priest forever. It's here that we see another quotation from Psalm 110. And just as it was linked together in chapter number one, we see both Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 linked together, closely aligned in this quotation back to back. We may note this again in chapter number one, but the connection between these you are statements. Verse number five, you are my son. Verse number six, you are a priest forever. Jesus as priest is significant and purposeful. Jesus as son, the sonship of Jesus Christ sets him apart. Both statements affirm the eternality of God's Son. Because God the Father has made the appointment and chosen His Son, Jesus Christ is priest for how long? Forever. Jesus has a right to this eternality, this eternal priesthood that's been chosen by God for this purpose. For Jesus Christ eternally to stand in this gap between sinful mankind and a holy God. Jesus Christ stands in that gap forever, for all eternity, securing our relationship with the holy God through the Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Praise the Lord that Jesus Christ has an eternal priesthood. You are priest forever. Looking forward to Hebrews chapter number 8, verse number 13. We're reminded that the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The immutability of Jesus Christ. He never changes. This is a reality that we understand and observe from Jesus Christ this morning from Hebrews chapter number five because God the Father and God the Son are eternal. So is this appointment of the Christ as our great high priest, the anointed one, the chosen one. All other Levitical priests were appointed, but the efficacy of that appointment expired upon their death or as a new high priest was appointed. What then should be our conclusion? Understanding that this appointment was forever. Only Christ was given an eternal priesthood. What is the conclusion that we should come to based off the truth of the word of God? Jesus truly is better. 
This brings us to our third area of contrast this morning. Our third area of contrast, we see at the second half of verse number six, only Christ was made a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Verse number six, you are priest forever. That's this eternal priesthood. But it is unique in its quality and nature. It is after the order of Melchizedek. So my goal in this third area of contrast is to introduce this line of Melchizedek as we look forward to chapter number seven. I do not want to steal the thunder of chapter number seven because literally the entire chapter is dedicated to understanding and unpacking who Melchizedek is and what its significance is in understanding our relationship between Jesus Christ and ourself and his unique role as the faithful, merciful, and great high priest. So then, I'll give us some introduction to Melchizedek, and we'll look forward to diving into the deep end of that in just a couple chapters in chapter number seven. Melchizedek is introduced to us back in Genesis chapter number 14 as the king of Salem. And he is also described as the priest of God most high. So the unique aspect of Melchizedek is that he is the only king and priest fulfilled in one person. This is what we see recorded in Scripture and just a few verses that we have as a testimony of the life of Melchizedek in Genesis chapter number 14. But we see these two roles, king and priest, fulfilled specifically in the person of Melchizedek. So God chose a king. He also chose a priest. Once the Levitical system came into place, we see those two roles separated. A king, once the Levitical law was established, you never saw a king fulfill both the role of king and great high priest. There are some other interesting and unique connections that can be made as we understand who Melchizedek is and we see this comparison and we see Jesus Christ set apart as a different line or order of priesthood, not of the Levitical system, but he follows after the priesthood of Melchizedek. What are some other observations that we can know? Well, Melchizedek in the name is translated, my king is righteousness. My king is righteousness is what this is translated as. We see Jesus is the king of righteousness. Jesus became the righteousness that we could never produce on our own. 1 Corinthians chapter number three, verse number 28. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring to things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let no one who boasts, excuse me, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So then, Melchizedek was king of righteousness, and he was also the actual king of Salem. Salem can be translated as peace. So not only did Jesus become righteousness, but he also, following after the order of Melchizedek, he also has become our peace. 
Romans chapter number eight reminds us of this importance of peace. Verse number five, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is described as hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Apart from Jesus Christ, we're described as hostile to God. Why? Because we're just simply attempting to live our life in our own way. We assert ourselves as our own authority. We define our own truth. So we see this reference to Melchizedek down in verses 9 and 10. Will you read that with me? Of Hebrews chapter number 5, verses 9 and 10. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus was and is perfect. And because Jesus is our righteousness, and because he is our peace, Jesus becomes the source. He becomes the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus himself affirms this reality during his earthly ministry in the gospel of John, chapter number 14, verse number six. Do you remember it? He says, I am the way the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus, our great high priest from the order of Melchizedek, is better than Aaron. He is better than the Levitical order. Jesus stands alone as unique in this manner. Our fourth and final area of contrast that we see in Hebrews chapter number five, verses five through 10 is this. Only Christ perfectly obeyed God the Father. Only Christ perfectly obeyed God the Father. Sandwiched between two Melchizedekian references, we have the author reminding us of the means by which Jesus was appointed as this high priest. And it came by way of suffering. Look at me at verse number seven of Hebrews chapter number five. Hebrews seven verse, or excuse me, Hebrews five, verse number seven. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Verse eight, although He was a son. He learned obedience through what he suffered. Only Christ perfectly obeyed God the Father. This little section here, these two verses, it points back to the scene at the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember that? Remember with me of Luke chapter number 22, verse number 41 through 44. That sobering 
scene as, as Jesus gathers there in the garden with some of his disciples, and he asks them to, to do what? To stop and to pray? As he lingered on a, a bit farther, he's, he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. He knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. There appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. As the king of righteousness and peace, he willingly stood in our place so that a way to the Father could be secured. Are you thankful for that this morning? He stood in our place. That way to the Father came through the Son, and it was only the Son that could stand in the place and provide the means to be saved. Only the Son could provide the payment for our sins. Only the Son could cover and remove the sins of mankind. Only the Son could be the King of righteousness and peace that could satisfy the demands of a holy and righteous God. Jared Wilson, in his book, The Gospel According to Satan, Eight Lies About God That Sound Like Truth, Jared quotes Mark Dever in saying this, the point is that Christ's death removed the penalty of our sin by removing the wrath of God. Our sin is not the primary objective of this sacrifice. It is not merely an expiation or a covering of sin that takes place. No, the main point of Christ's sacrifice is not covering over our sins, though he does that, but rather it is about the satisfaction of God's wrath against us because of our sins. That's what the word propitiation indicates, the satisfaction of God's holy anger against us. Do you remember Hebrews chapter number 2? We've heard this word propitiation before, verse number 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Slavery to what? Slavery to to sin, to our own way. Lust of flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of the life, our own truth, our own authority. Lifelong slavery, verse number 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's you, that's me, verse number 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. For what purpose and what end? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Are you thankful that God is able this morning? He is able to help those who are being tempted. This man, Jesus Christ, 
He made propitiation for sin. He satisfied the wrath of God. He stood in my place. And friends, if the historicity of Jesus is real, and it is, and Jesus Himself said that He was sent from the Father not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for for many, whether we like that plan or not, In God's wisdom, His love toward us was poured out through the giving of His Son, Jesus Christ. Through the giving of His own Son, John 15, 13 reminds us of this motivation of love. Greater love has no one than this. That someone laid down his life for his friends. Whether it's a random stranger stepping in to to help somebody in distress, or whether it's a a first responder stepping in to protect and, and ultimately giving their life for the protection of something else, is that not the greatest definition of love that the world could ever come up with? That a man give his life for another. This is what Jesus Christ has done for us. He demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were, yes, sinners, Christ died for us. This isn't some twisted process or plan that God has unfolded. No, this is the greatest display of love. It was the love that sent Jesus. It was the love that Jesus went to a cross. If these accounts of Jesus' life really happened, and they did, we are all confronted with this most important question that Jesus posed to the crowd and to his disciples. Do you remember it in Matthew chapter number 16? He says this, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or the one or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the anointed one, the son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This morning, I wonder if you can truly say that Jesus is better. He's a better high priest, he's a better savior. He's a better source of joy and peace and certainly righteousness that we could ever come up with on our own. He demonstrated that love towards us by giving himself willingly so that he could stand in that gap and represent us perfectly before a holy God. Would you join me in prayer this morning as we commit these things to the Lord? God, I pray this morning... that we would consider and contemplate the person and work of Jesus. If Jesus truly did walk on this earth, and He did, we, we must consider 
who he said he was and why he said he came. And, and we must reconcile those realities as we look at the book of Hebrews so far. We have seen your love poured out towards us through this man, Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the chosen one. God, I thank you for your redemptive plan that you have made this message available to us. You have made it known to us. I pray that we would consider that question that Jesus posed to his disciples. Who do you say that the Son of Man is? God, I pray that we would be able to confidently affirm that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I thank you that you are a high priest that sympathizes with our weakness. And you have told us to come with confidence to that throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and grace and help in our time of need. Father, we are in a time of need. I pray that you would give us wisdom to respond rightly to your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.